Let's go with the first question. Like, why did, when did you become passionate about education? Oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's a good question. Uh, yes. A lot of hard hitters. Oh, this. my goodness. You know, I was a senior in college, actually. I didn't know what I was going to do in my life. Um, I had studied sociology. I had studied policy, psychology, human development. And I knew I cared about young people. And I knew I, knew I cared about poor families. <clears throat> um... But it wasn't actually until someone linked social justice and education. Like someone said, hey, you know, the best way like to change the world is to like be able to work with young people like all the time and like really inspire them, especially the kids who we tended to give up to, to give up on. So the students who are sort of viewed as the most marginal, um, I wanted to work with those students in this like quest to like change the world. So it was like education and social justice. I knew I cared about one, but I didn't know the connection to the other. And when someone helped me make that link, I was like, okay, it's education. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, well, so you became a school teacher. Yes. So I taught for three years in elementary school. Okay. And then I started working with young people in after school spaces. So I've worked with elementary kids, middle schoolers and high schoolers. And then during my PhD, I worked with adults in jail. So like I always just wanted to keep teaching. Um, graduate school can be really boring, honestly. <laughs> it's a lot of classes, a lot of theory, a lot of books. If you're a nerd, it's great. I am a nerd. But if you actually like people, <laughs> um, it can feel very isolating. So every evening, um, I would work with volunteer teachers who would go onto Rikers Island and work with people who we knew people had given up on. So it was a great way for me to still keep teaching. So I've had the opportunity to work with adults, kids, actually high schoolers. Middle schoolers are a struggle. I actually okay. think I actually think they're harder than working with folks in jail, honestly. So <laughs> I think it's a special period. So yeah. Definitely. So why are you a professor? Holy moly, that's a good question. Um, I'm a first generation college student. I never thought I would be a professor. I don't I didn't know professors in my in my family, let alone like my circle of people. Um, I just, people encouraged me to just keep going further with my education. And, and the more people said, hey, you know, you could do a master's, you know that. I was like, me? Uh, you know, you could do a PhD, me? <laughs> um, you could be a professor, me? Like every, every stage, someone tapped me. I did not go out looking for it because I just didn't know that it existed actually. Um, and that I could, I didn't have, I didn't see myself in those roles because so much of the professoriate is very white, very male, very affluent folks. I just never thought that that was my world. So it took someone saying, I can see you in that, in that position. And I was like, really? And then if you give me scholarship money to do it, I'll go do it, you know? <laughs> so it's been um, an unwitting experience. I didn't know, I just sort of stumbled upon it. And then I realized that I really am a nerd. So I like, <laughs> I like theory and practice and trying to figure out people and figure out how we understand people and theories of people and theories of the world, actually. So. I think that's a testament to like the tap on the shoulder and like how important that can be. Exactly. Push people Exa- forward. And I hope I am doing the tapping, actually, for another young person, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
And how does, okay, and one more thing on the sort of introductory, how does teaching help you accomplish, like, what you want to accomplish? I think teaching is the closest you'll ever be to, like, reality. <laughs> um, right. You cannot hide behind abstraction and um, every, like, I think I think a lot of stuff is just bourgeois performances of like whatever we think we're doing. We don't really have to put the um metal to the we don't have to actually like make our talk walk. <laughs> and so teaching is always a humbling it is always a humbling experience because you are with people who are in the world and you're not just teaching to them. You are teaching and learning with them. They push back. Hopefully, if they haven't been oppressed yeah. <laughs> by very authoritarian structures, I talk about that a lot. But if if we cultivate um, authentic learning, teaching is a way to always be learning, and it is a way to always be um, engaging with the world in an authentic way. So I actually don't trust myself when I'm not teaching because so much of stuff becomes very theorized and abstract and not practical yeah right on okay so now i have a bunch of questions about like work that you've done from what i can okay i don't know how well researched it is so i guess describe your experience and uh later research with Teach for America, because you're a Teach for America alum too. Yes, so I am a TFA alum who then like defected (laughs) and turned critic. So it is a weird story because I joined TFA because they have a great marketing. They market really well, which is, and they brand really well. And I always tell people this. So their brand is teaching for America. I mean, who would be against something that sounds so awesome, right? So I was all in when I heard the message and they definitely used language that I cared about in terms of social justice and teaching. Um, And then, so I joined and my first year teaching, they asked CNN to document my first year. So my first year as a teacher was documented by CNN as the TFA person. And when I watched the documentary, It was a story of this superheroic teacher who comes into this poor community and like is changing everything and like changing the world. And it conflicted with my actual experiences in that community. I was helped by veteran teachers, by parents. It was like a community effort. Um, It is no one woman show. (laughs) And, and, And I realized that media there's a we love the story of the superhero teacher and we decontextualize them from actual communities of people who have been working for a long time to have quality education and it is a collective effort it is like a village really so that was the first seed that this is looking weird that's not how <laughs> um, i see myself like... that's not how i see myself none of my colleagues were mentioned and you can imagine them watching with me. It was like, oh, really? You just came in and saved our whole school, right? <laughs> Look at this woman getting all the credit. And, was, and, and in fact, all of my lessons, so much of what I did, it was older people. Like, this is how, you know, you can engage students. So that was the first seed. And then, um, you know, TFA, you commit for two years. I stayed for three and thought I was special. Like, oh, I stayed for three years because I'm, I'm, I'm a superhero teacher. And when I turned in my resignation, a parent 
um, had found out one of the current students in my class, the parent came to me and she had a little girl in her stroller. And she said, I was planning on having my other child be your student. And then she said, why do you teachers come in and leave so quickly? You know, what, why are you just in and out of our community like that? <laughs> and, and that was the second red flag. I was like, why am I coming in and out? Almost like a revolving door. Um, and so it, it started to make me rethink how TFA viewed teaching. It's a very singular, individual, heroic act. It wasn't in nested in communities. And it wasn't very sustainable because you have people coming into the most marginalized communities and using it as a revolving door. They come in for two years and leave, come in for two years and leave. And so the relationships get fractured. Students don't get long-term relationships with, with students and families over time. Um, and that is not a community model of schooling. My teachers know everybody in my family. You know, they, you know, it was just much more sustainable. So that was, and then the third flag was I realized even in it that is that they recruit from very, you know, um, they recruit students who they think are um, the best and the brightest. But the assumptions are embedded in that because they recruited at the Ivy Leagues universities, overwhelmingly white. <laughs> and I met TFAers who had no experience in communities of color. In fact, the very first time <laughs> that they were like talking to a kid who was a different race and, and class background was during their five weeks of training. And I was like, holy crap, so you recruited the people who were the furthest removed socially from these spaces. How are they gonna unpack class bias, white privilege, um, heteronormative? How are they gonna unpack all of this in five weeks? And be ready to be good professional colleagues with other people and learn with other teachers, not because they're better than other teachers. So there's right. a, uh, there a bourgeois feel to it all. And so that made me rethink a lot of things. And then I met some other folks who said, hey, you're a great writer. Why don't you just write your own narrative that highlights community cultural wealth, that highlights what other colleagues and teachers are doing, that retells the story so that you're not the superhero teacher who came in and saved the day because of TFA. <laughs> Whoa, so sort of rewriting your story. That's... Yeah, so that was the very first thing I ever wrote and published was counter-narratives of TFAers who were telling a different story about what education should look like. It is a collective endeavor, and it should not be a stepping stone and a revolving door so that teachers come in and leave these communities high and dry. So. Right, so you talk about, so they had this initiative, I guess, so you said, I don't know, I saw, I like this term, like the Paradoxical Diversity Initiative. Yes, yeah, so that came out in 2016. So that was, so that's like the fourth red flag that I started realizing was that um, I have educators in my family, black women who were, who've been teaching for years and years and years, who went to school to be teachers, who got a license to be teachers, and they were, um, their schools were closing. Um, similar to the one of the books you're reading, their schools were closing, their positions were being eliminated, they weren't getting rehired in some of the new schools. As that labor pool is shrinking, which happens to be black veteran teachers, actually, <clears throat> in our urban schools, TFA is expanding mm -hmm. drastically. And they overwhelmingly rely not on black veteran teachers, but on younger novice teachers, often white, who were there committed for maybe two years, and who... Uh, whose salaries are much lower. So they're cheaper labor, they're a wider labor pool, <laughs> um, and they're not going to challenge policies because they're not there long enough. So I started to think, what the hell is this happening here? 
And then I got so pissed off that TFA then decided to, to, to claim that they cared about diversity. So they started to say, well, we actually care about diversity. We're not as white as people think. We actually recruit, look at Tarenda, we recruited her. You know, like we have a couple black folks, you know, folks of color, so we're diverse. I said, no, 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 you're not gonna get away with that. If you care about diversity, then you would not be indifferent to the mass layoffs and school closures that are affecting black teachers, teachers of color. So if you care about diversity, think systemically, think about the policies, and how are you complicit in providing a cheap labor pool for uh, someone argue for a more corporate interest where you can save money by paying teachers less. Meanwhile, you do it on the backs of disposing and displacing the veteran teachers that were already there, who went to school, who have licenses, who care about this stuff. So I said, you don't get to claim that you care about diversity and be indifferent to policies that are displacing people. Yeah. That's what got me in trouble. Hard <laughs> irony there. That is what got me in trouble. So I was like, oh, they're coming for me. Yeah, so, not communally sustainable, but maybe economically sustainable. Matt, that is that is the yeah. issue. And it took me like, whoa. Like, I'm glad you can see it, but it took me years to connect the dots. So this is economically efficient. If you care about an efficiency model mm-hmm. of saving money, maximizing profit for whoever is like controlling labor pool. But if you care about democracy and citizenship, teachers and students should have relationships that are sustainable. Communities should feel as though this is their school, that, that, that it reflects you know, their own civic interests and concerns, that it supports their struggles for freedom and liberation. Those are two different models. And I think the one that's been winning in the past 10 years has been this efficiency economic model and TFA is complicit in it. And yeah. that's when I really was like, okay, it's no holes bar. <laughs> so is that... Is that TFA's problem, or do you think that's because we run schools as though they're businesses? Or like, I think it's both. I actually, I think it's both. I actually am learning. People don't realize this, but I've actually learned to be more fair and nuanced at TFA. Like I, I, I went from like, I'm all in, like holy shit, this is horrible, to like, wait a minute. Um, I do think they are simply capitalizing on what is already becoming a, a business of schooling. That we are really in an era where schooling is thought of as a business. Um, we are borrowing from, the, we're borrowing language, practices from the corporate sector. And I think if you want corporate foundation dollars, if you want philanthropy dollars, you get on board with it. And I think TFA, um, not from the beginning, but I think midway during their sort of um, trajectory they made a decision to go for the philanthropic dollars and those folks are much more attuned to business language corporate language. we're going to get outcomes we're going to get testing we're going to get productivity we're not all this soft stuff about sustainability and community relations like that doesn't that's not going to get us the philanthropic money and so I think they made a conscious decision to get them get on board with the dominant hegemonic policy norm and and it, for those of us who are critiquing it, I think we're pushing TFA to say, you don't get to use the language of social justice when you're in, in sort of in alignment with groups that have no social, social justice built into their, their mission. Right? right. So you have to make a decision. And, and, and to be clear, I talk about TFA as like the organization, the people at the top. I think core members, these are young people who are trying to figure out life after college. I, it's not necessarily them, but it's the people who are um, making decisions about 
policy and where they're getting their funding from that I think make them complicit in corporate remodeling of schools. Definitely. All right. So sort of switching gears. So you are doing a lot of research about walkouts now. Oh, yeah, with the teachers. Yeah. Can yeah. you describe what's what you're oh, finding? Um, I think it's inter- I think some would actually argue that this should this could have been predicted because because speaking to what we were saying earlier, this corporate model, so teachers labor has been devalued. <clears throat> it already was because no one goes into teaching to be rich. But especially over the past 10 to 20 years, we're in a moment of austerity where we've cut budgets, we've cut all the things that teachers have been telling us that they need. They need counselors in their school, they need resources, they need social workers, they need supports. Um, But in a model where we are chasing the test score outcomes, uh, we have sliced and diced (laughs) a lot of the services that would make teachers' jobs um, much more... uh, much more accomplished or accomplishable or feasible. Um, so I would argue that this is the moment that, they, that they've just said we've had enough. <laughs> um, and the walkouts actually have, so a couple of findings. Last year we saw six walkouts happen in six states. And when I say state, we have never seen statewide walkouts where all of the districts, like in West Virginia, all 55 district teachers decided we're walking out. And I think the language is important because strike means that they negotiated this as a part of a contract. A walkout means we don't care about any union contract. We've decided that you can't get our labor until you sort of um, respond to our needs. So we're just sort of either sick outs have been another interesting strategy where they just call in sick or they just don't show up or they walk out. But what was great about last year is that they all happened not in the quote-unquote blue states where we think progressive folks or militant, liberal, you know. It happened in the most conservative spaces where austerity was practiced the most. Conservative, and when I mean conservative, I mean conservative around money (laughs) and budgets. And so West Virginia, Oklahoma, uh, Kentucky, I mean, these are places where you're you're not imagining like labor militant, like this is not like a Che Guevara town, right? Like these are folks that are like, we're not okay with you not supporting schools. And then this year, we've seen them move to cities that are under the leadership of Democrats, actually. So right. now Democrats have to actually respond to, like, what is your role in either not facilitating and supporting schools? Um, they're holding their feet to the fire, too. So in Oakland and L.A. and Denver, you can't hide behind left versus right. All teachers are saying... Whatever your politics has been, you've ignored this institution, which is the, some would argue, is the bedrock of our democracy, is creating public schools, but you can't starve them and think that we're also going to have a, an educated citizenry, you know? So I, I love studying this because I just think it's like, it's about time. They're just like, nope, we're done. We're, we're not taking this. <laughs> so it's been interesting. Have you done any research? Have you looked into student walkouts at all? So I, I study other people who study the student walkouts because okay. I, I, I'm only one person. So I get to, I focus in on the teachers, but I am interested in the parallels because actually preceding teacher walkouts, we had five years, actually, I would argue since my, um, the, the death of Michael Brown and most recently with the Parkland students in Florida, young people have actually been modeling activism yeah quite a bit especially (laughs) it's an understatement right (laughs) it's actually the young people who 
have like reinvigorated civil disobedience and like engaging in the public sector and saying, wait a minute, we should have a say in whatever policies are being uh, that are, that are affecting us. So gun policies, you know, that happens to affect us. You know, um, excessive police brutality and, and and excessive use of force that happens to affect us. So it's young people saying we may not be able to vote, but we are going to influence the public sphere and we're going to take it to the streets. And I actually wonder sometimes our teachers, did teachers learn from their students in that moment? Did they model activism of their students? What I definitely know for a fact is that during the teacher walkouts, it was the young people who helped them message themselves on social media better. So in Oakland... They helped the teachers? Yeah, like, Whoa. you know, because oftentimes teachers don't always know how to make the case for their strike, right? Like, it's not as sexy to say we're striking because of a labor dispute about our pension, right? Like, but mm -hmm. if you say, this is about, like, you know... Um, you know, the young people would say, we want counselors, not cops. And it's like, oh yeah, that, you know. I like, like that alliteration. <laughs> like, like the resources that we need um, are in contrast with where money has been going. So the young people, I think, are just savvier at sort of messaging and branding using social media and making a large, contextualizing labor disputes in a larger context about where are we sending our money? If we're not paying our teachers, who are we paying? So why have we expanded the punitive and carceral prison culture around policing? And, and we have money, we always seem to have money for that. But when it comes to counselors and social workers and teachers and nurses, we seem to, to talk about austerity there. So I love yeah. that they're able to help the adults make the case for what this struggle is really about. So. Yeah. And I think from my experience, like students at my school would walk out, but it's because they were taught from teachers uh, okay. about civil disobedience. So it's an iterative process, yeah. And so it's sort of yeah. cool how they affect one another. And that means that I think they're, I think some teachers, especially because I look at the, the Parkland, when the young people of Parkland out in, I think, Florida, when they talk about the teachers who inspired them, <clears throat> um, they talk about those teachers who talked about civil disobedience. Um, and they will always be like these silent, like heroes of these kinds of movements because we don't talk, we don't spotlight the classroom in that way. But it's just not, and then some people argue and say, well, what if it is truly organic that it happened outside of adults, that it's young people? But, but I think there's a relationship always. Teachers and students are always in relation with one another. So how are they sharing these ideas about reimagining the world? And I think it's a, back, I think it's a mutual relationship that inspires change. If they're using progressive and social justice methods, I think it's yeah. harder to inspire that when you're focused on teaching to the test, right? So hopefully we seem to have teachers who are still imaginative and progressive about how they teach. So, so next question is sort of similar. Like, who do you think has more agency, students or teachers? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think teachers... A lot of teachers are, I think we're in a moment of militancy with teachers and like, but I think the average teacher does feel like they're up against so much, you know, um, mandates, structures, um, they get blamed for a lot. And I think they have agency, but they may not always see it. Um, whereas, I don't know, students also 
might not always feel legit. I, I think it's I don't I think I think it's a tough question. I think yeah. structures are real. I think people feel as though they are in a very structured environment, and I think we have to redefine what counts as agency. Sometimes small acts of defiance, I think, are examples of agency. It doesn't always have to look like I'm gonna organize a mass walkout. I think that's wonderful, but I think maybe young people and teachers are finding smaller ways to buck the system or subvert it in a way that isn't always grand. And that, to me, counts as agency, but I think they both can feel very um, tied down by structures. Yeah. All right. Um, So describe, you say, uh, so describe your work in politics, I guess. So you (laughs) lobbied to Congress. I'm not quite sure what your experience here is. gone to Congress. I haven't gotten into that. Okay. Um, I, on committees or something. I'm on committees. I've worked it. So I've worked with the superintendent and the DPS, the Denver Public Schools um, committees to sort of look into issues of gentrification, how are schools responding to a changing demographic. Um, I, my way of getting involved in politics is actually a little bit more subversive because I am what they call a junior professor, somewhat of a rookie. I'm I'm not tenured, so I have to be careful with like I'm already on TFA's bad list. So I have to like play it carefully. So I actually take joy in, in any article I write, any book or book chapter, I turn it into a policy brief. Something that a teachers meeting or a group of like young teachers who want to find a way to like push back against school closures they can find my research on um, on the harms of school closure and use it quickly in a meeting or a debate with district officials, perhaps, you know, or the expansion of charter schools. I also write a lot about charter schools. I, I write, um, I try to be nuanced about charter schools, that there are some charter schools that are definitely for-profit, corporate-driven, cookie cutter run by folks from the business world and there are also charter schools that are um, run by community groups the issue is that the corporate charters have exploded (laughs) and um, so right now I'm writing something called in the shadow of charter franchises so what happens when you have like a Walmart type (laughs) you know system happening with schooling but then you have these mom and pop charter schools that are trying to do something different so I try to give people statistics, you know, parents who are trying to make choices about whether to send their kid. Some people may not call that politics because, again, people might think of politics as lobbying directly to your congressman. But I actually think the discourse in the public sphere, like facts, people need information to make the claims or to push back against dominant claims. And that means researchers' work has to be public. It has to be accessible. They have to be able to get it. And they don't have always time to read 50 books you've written. So they might need a one-page policy brief on what do we know about the harms of school closure and displacement of kids? Um, How do I turn um, Eve Ewing's book into a (laughs) two-pager about they tried this in Chicago, they're trying to bring this here in Denver, what should we do about it? You know, like, so I think to me that's how I'm being political is making research accessible for groups who will be displaced or harmed by dominant corporate policies. Nice. All right, so let's go back to that. So let's uh, let's talk about charter schools then for a moment. Uh, you did a lot of work on school choice and competition. So what's your assessment of charter schools and school choice? 
Wow. Um, okay, how do I give a short answer on that? I think, I think the, the story of charters is um, interesting. It, it, it's a story of really interesting intentions that got appropriated by groups with different intentions. And the question now is how to reclaim the original goals of the charter movement. So what do I mean by that? Early on, different people wanted to start schools because they were tired of the dominant traditional ways of schooling. Like we, like folks like myself have been writing about, we gotta break out of what can feel like very oppressive ways of schooling. So charters was a way to create zones of experimentation, <laughs> driven by teachers though, who could then do something outside of the district to say, we're still district teachers, but we have autonomy which is what charters do. They give you autonomy to reinvent the way you do schooling. And it was actually supposed to serve the kids who were the most disengaged. So the kids who were at risk of dropping out, who didn't like the lecture style, who didn't like this traditional way of, who were overly controlled. It was supposed to start with those kids and have teachers, educators, driving the experimentation. Other groups, however, realized that if we can get autonomy from the district, that means we have autonomy to hire and fire. We have autonomy to pay differently. We have autonomy to um, take private funds and not have to uh, you know, report where we get money from. So I think some people read autonomy <laughs> and experimentation through the lens of um, a private model of schooling. Economic opportunity. And economic opportunity. <laughs> and so, and to be frank, for the past 25 years of the charter movement, those groups have run with the charter world. And they um, start schools with, like, at scale. In Michigan, 80% of the charter schools are for-profit. For-profit. Profit off of kids in schools. Like, Where do that they means, make their money, though? That means you go low. So, so every kid in, in Michigan or in a district might get a per-pupil expenditure. Let's just say it's 10000 k so if you can get 10 kids to come to your school at 10K per kid, you have autonomy to choose how to spend that money. You can go low on salaries and go high on paying managers. And so in a lot of our for-profit and even non-profit charter schools, the CEOs, again, why are they calling themselves CEOs? The CEOs of those schools make over $200,000 for serving like, <laughs> you know, 500 kids or so. That means you have to really think about how they're redistributing monies. Um, and th just the whole, th the issue is that they're not making the choices based on what's the best way to educate a child, but based on how do you maximize and save money. I and mean, that is a different mindset when we're talking about, do we go cheap on the curricula? Do we go cheap on who the kids' teachers are? I mean, that is a concern when you economize education. So the whole story of charters is that I think some of the some folks are in it for really trying to disrupt traditional ways of schooling in the service of kids, and others are um, looking at it as an an, an enterprise, <laughs> a a model for how to to get into the business of schooling, and 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 I don't think they're like horrible people. I think they think that they're doing well by kids by having an efficient cheaper way of schooling i just don't think we should put a price tag we shouldn't make decisions about kids based on what's going to get a, get us a profit
Okay, so charter schools started off with like teacher autonomy. The whole point was that the buzzwords for charter is autonomy in exchange for they, they have to deliver something. So they get five, the charter is a contract, a five year contract. And you have five years to use your autonomy to do something totally different. And in five years, you get audited to see what happened, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah. So autonomy means different things depending on people's ideologies about school and their intentions. Yeah. So I guess my next question would be like, if teachers want autonomy and freedom to sort of do what they want to do with lessons and schools and stuff... Uh, how can you justify, or like, or what is, where's the balance between that and common core and like structure and making sure everyone gets the same education? That is a, that's the bingo question. And this is why teachers feel like policies are schizophrenic. They really, they feel like, what the hell are you guys doing? On one end, you want us to standardize everything and you are holding us to common outcomes and or you're holding us to sort of uh, prescribed or um, projected outcomes and then at the same time you want us to experiment and do different things and be like free <laughs> um, so the, the, the answer to that is that it's a, a hodgepodge those things don't come together that way. so we are as married to trying to standardize a school system that's serving the most kids in the world and also trying to create zones of experimentation and autonomy. Um, I don't think it's an easy answer. Like all those who are for autonomy are the liberals who are progressive and all those who are for standardization are the traditionals. I don't think it's that simple. Um, I think people are trying to create meaningful, engaging experiences for kids, but also trying to make sure that those kids are ready to compete or have similar quality education as other kids. So that so in some ways they, they can see standardization being in the service of equity right. to make sure everyone has the same. But they also can see how that can become like on steroids where everything is so rigidly similar that you, you um, undervalue the diversity of our kids and the diverse needs they have. So I think it's a really interesting dance to try to hold those two together. But I actually think we can do it. We're smart people. Like, we could figure this out. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, but I think you have to start from a clear definition of what is justice. If justice is fitting kids into the current system as is, um, then standardization might be fine. If justice is helping people identify and define what what is meaningful for them and their own uh, um, aspirations, then you got to take off the reins a little bit and allow your allow schools to be in conversation actually with parents and communities about what actually would be an ideal experience for you what do you want to get out of your education mm -hmm. and then taking that conversation together with okay this is what this community wants this is what we know the national system is doing or what other kids are doing how do we create something that's really beneficial but i think imposing is not the standard of equity for some of us which can feel that's what a lot of education feels like for some people but then totally having free for all where there's no <laughs> guideposts at all can actually be just as problematic. And harmful, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Those are tough questions, Matt, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got the questions, that's for sure. And if you ever feel like 
you need to pass, feel free Should to. Should I work for, like, some <laughs> investigative journalism? Like, this is tough questions. Okay, go ahead. I love, yeah, the journalism. I love it. Okay, so through doing your research, how have your thoughts on, I think we sort of talked on this, how have your thoughts on it, the education system changed? Like... Oh. Hmm, how has it changed? I mean, I've gone from... Like, just wanting to do good based on the standard definition of what good is. I was that I was that student that did well in the traditional system. So as a teacher, when I first started, I just I just thought I would give to every student what I had. And then it wasn't it wasn't until like my brothers and others said, you know, I hated school. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, you hated school? And then I realized that if I'm not thinking about other kids who did not enjoy school, if I'm not trying to change my own idea of what school is, I'm actually not being inclusive because the people who become teachers typically are the ones for whom the current system worked for them. But we're actually, if we care about justice, we want to bring in other kids for whom schooling was not an experience. So the the people who become teachers have to somehow think transformatively and not just reproducing what they had and what they thrived in yeah so over time i've learned to value other modes of intelligence other ways of 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 competence or or showing competence um conformity i've learned it's actually not a great thing like you know like wow like some of the most creative minds and creative people hated school because they were actually being asked to conform and to stunt that. So so my yeah. ideas of what is skill, what is competence, what is intelligence, that has changed over time. Policy, the policy research has helped me understand that the game is very complex. Um, small wins count. I'm learning to value small wins. Yeah. <laughs> I think... What are some of those small wins? So small wins could be um, like a district getting parents to vote for um, the use of books that feature same-sex parents. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they're going to all of a sudden have transgender bathrooms. It doesn't mean they're going to... But just the reading list actually um, has been approved where we can actually just feature diverse family structures like that might not be radical for some folks but like where I'm from that's pretty radical and it took a lot of work on the part of a district leader to have you know these community conversations with parents about it's okay the world is not like we're not here to indoctrinate your student by having books available that feature same-sex you know couples um, that's a huge win. And so I'm learning to be nuanced about the context in which people are experiencing education and that Boulder is actually not the most typical place. <laughs> and so what might seem like something small here is really big in a different community. Um, and so I, I, and especially also coming from the Bible Belt South, I've really learned to celebrate um, just people willing to talk about um, um, issues that I know bump up against their religious beliefs, but being able to understand that we are in a public system that serves people who have constitutional rights, 
And you may not be there yet with your personal faith, but that doesn't allow you to deny and, and underserve people who are here. Like, they exist. Right. <laughs> um, so just those conversations, I think, are pretty radical given the context in which schooling happens. Heck yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. So going off, so I guess broadly, what do you see as the biggest impediment to Horace Mann's vision of school oh. as the great equalizer? I think what? private money and private influence. Okay. And I think the 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 more I mean I I care about issues of race, I care about issues of gender, I care about like any ism, I'm down for the <laughs> struggle with ism. But all of those communities and groups I find are up against um private interest. If if who can control decision making is very much tied to who's on a school board, which is very much tied to who was able to raise funds to get on that school board. And that is tied to who was funding them in the service of making decisions that affect the public. A lot of corporate dollars are now, actually a lot of school board races actually look like uh, national political races where we're talking money being pumped in at upwards of 600K for one school board member who can then make a decision about curriculum. Yeah. Um, I mean, this happened in Douglas County. This, and so I'm just like, holy crap. Like, the masses of people, their power is in their vote. Um, because we might be out-dollared or out-money, but the vote, if it's on the side of masses of people, is powerful. But if then that money infiltrates who even gets to be in electoral politics or whatnot, that's scary to me. <laughs> um same with labor and labor unions. Um, they've taken massive hits. Meanwhile, I listen to a lot of Supreme Court cases where uh, corporations are now considered, like Citizens United is a very scary Supreme Court decision where like the freedom of speech of a corporation is more protected <laughs> than a, a worker yeah. sometimes. And it's like, whoa, what's going to rival? And, and, and this is not to be like... Sometimes it can sound conspiratorial, but when we're talking about masses of money, there is a there are two different worlds in this country. I mean, we're talking masses and masses of wealth and up against like literally the Davids up against the Goliaths. And so I feel as though like Horace Mann's vision can only <laughs> um I mean if I mean he wanted all groups of kids to be on one school. They don't, you know, groups of kids in this country don't even live in the same, like, stratosphere. Like, it's not even just different neighborhoods. Like, what they do over the summers, where they spend their time, the money differences that they have access to. There are kids in this country who will never literally have a common experience or even have meaningful contact across class differences because of massive inequality. Um, and so, to me, that is... And so, so I think you can go through your life in this country and not recognize and even understand the struggles of a totally different group of people because you've never literally had to come across them, not in church, not in school, not in neighborhoods. I mean, where do people come together in a country and find common cause? They don't. We're highly segregated. So, and I, and so again, I think that's all connected to massive amounts of wealth inequality that can then influence our public decisions about schools. So going into segregation, okay. great, great transition. <laughs> so you used the term 21st century Jim Crow schools. You sort of, oh. I would say, adopted this term. I don't know. It's everywhere online. Yeah, it's, 
I have co-authors for that book, and yeah. they really wanted that title. Okay. <laughs> so what's your take on this? But, but the, the whole point of us naming it that, um, and it's interesting because I get the backlash for that because my co-authors are not on social media, but on Twitter, people come for me on Twitter about like, how dare you call charter schools Jim Crow schools? <laughs> um, so Jim Crow harkens to a time of legal segregation. Um, and we argue in that book that the schools that are getting all of our attention, our monies, our dollars, our philanthropic attention, um, the charge that they do not do a good job of creating integrated schooling. In fact, to expand the charter sector is just to expand more segregated schools. Um, and what we point to is that it's a missed opportunity because remember with charters, they have the autonomy to do whatever the hell they want. Right. So they could use that autonomy to say, you know what? We're going to rezone who comes here and we're going to intentionally recruit kids from different racial backgrounds. And we're going to create these islands, perhaps, of, of the last bastion of integrated schools. Like charters could have run, like that, that experiment could have happened in this zone of autonomy. But instead they sort of chosen to perpetuate and actually exacerbate the racial segregation that we already see in public schools. So we, so we go harder on them because they actually have more autonomy to, re, um, to reimagine schooling, but they've reproduced the very segregated schools that we already see, even with their license to do something different. Um, and then it also harkens back to an actual history where actually the history of choice, like this whole, we're in love with this idea of choice. We want to create like a market where parents get to choose and shop for their school. Like, do you want this school? Do you want that school? It's like, a school voucher. Yeah, it's about, like the whole choice thing. If you actually study history, choice came about, vouchers actually came about in the segregated South after the Brown versus Board of Education decision and white parents said, you're going to force us to integrate? No, we're going to create a voucher system where they can take their public monies and choose to go to a private academy. Mm-hmm. That's where vouchers came from. That's where it came as a rebellion against integration. Whoa. <laughs> and so and that's how they use the language of choice and vouchers to say, well, it's not that we don't want to be integrated. We just want choice of where to go. And they happen to make that choice at the moment that they were being asked to integrate. And so we actually argue that choice today is doing the same thing. It's just helping us reproduce and recreate um, segregation. So no one's choosing integration. They're still making the choice to perpetuate segregated schools. And we argue, well, why is that? I mean, we have choice and autonomy. Why aren't we choosing the opposite? We're choosing maybe what's already the status quo, and we're just calling it what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's Jim Crow school, it's segregated schooling. And it's legal because you still have the legal choice to then go off and no one, there's no um, like civil rights um, initiative to create integration. Integration happened because the government in the 1960s realized that the government segregated us, so it's your job to integrate us. There's no civil rights initiative to do that now. So people are choosing segregation. And we just want to make them feel bad about it <laughs> by yeah. saying, like, you do, it's fine, choose your school, but you do know it's, it's the same thing as what the people were doing in the 50s. And we're going to call it this. And we're going yeah, to call, we're it gonna call you out. Yeah, and that's when people get pissed. Like, you know, <laughs> people, people like euphemisms, but when you call it what it is, the same thing when, um, actually, you know, Kozel, what is really brilliant about the way he writes, he gets people upset. Like, one of his books is just called Apartheid Schooling. 
Like the U.S. was very, we, we loved ourselves that we took a stance against apartheid in South Africa in the 1980s and 90s. We were like, yeah, we were for Mandela. So for then, Kozel to come out and say, you know we have apartheid schooling in the U.S. Our kids are segregated. They don't go to school. And I was like, oh. So I think names are important to call things what they are. Yeah. So, so what does meaningful integration look like? So that will take a good 10 years of more research. Yeah. But we do know that um, it's not enough to bring kids of different races into a building. <laughs> because what actually happens is even in that building, they just get tracked. So even in one building, all the Latinx and black kids are in the general classes, white kids are. So a lot of people say, hey, we have integrated schools. No, you still have tracking, which is another form of segregation within the school. So meaningful integration would look like a detract school, and that already is a tough one for people. <laughs> but that means you would have high expectations for all kids in that school, that if there's a gifted program, honors program, whatever, IB program, you want to make that program accessible to every kid. It is hard to create meaningful integration when the classrooms are segregated. So tracking is a part of maintaining segregation. So meaningful integration means detracking schools, it also means um, addressing head-on the power differences between parents, okay? So if you have parents of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, they might also come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And so we've learned that it takes a strong leader in a school to say, we're not going to just have the wealthy white parents make all the decisions. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we got to have a democratic way of creating decision-making so that parents whose kids are of color don't feel as though they're just sort of second-class citizens in their own school. Um, and that's hard. Um, so I think strong leadership, detracking, and curriculum. The curriculum has to actually look like the kids in the school, right? So like, if you have an integrated school, but the curriculum is heavily Eurocentric, it's heavily steeped in um, traditional ways of telling the American story that doesn't include everybody's stories. That's not meaningful integration. Yeah. That means you just brought the kids of color into a like a um, a Eurocentric space. Um, so a lot of the pushback, actually, the biggest hurdle, the biggest hostility against integration is from parents of color who are like, no, we're tired. White folks, like, they don't really want us. They don't, so stop with all this integration. They bring us over to this school. They bust us across town, and then they just give us all of, like, they make us just feel like shit in this yeah, school. Yeah, they don't mean it. You yeah. know? So, actually, we call it, um, um, what do we call it? We call it uh, desegregation fatigue or integration fatigue. <laughs> like, hmm. the parents of color are tired. <laughs> They're just like, we'd rather have a good... Plessy system, Plessy versus me, like we'd have, we'd rather have a good separate and equal, like really make it separate and equal than a fake integration Yeah. where we're together, but we're really treated like second class citizens. That's actually the biggest issue right now. I'm actually on a panel next week about, um, do we need integration for equity? Because a lot of parents are skeptical that, that white privilege can be disrupted enough for them to feel really included in the curriculum, in the school culture. They're just very cynical. And so they're like, give us our own schools and give us the money and we'll be okay. Hmm. <laughs> so it's actually the biggest host the biggest pushback is from parents of color. Wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, what? So Okay. Um
if you were in charge of Colorado's education system, or naturally, or nationally, uh, what would be the first thing you change? Hmm. Oh my God, I'm not, I'm not ready for that kind of power. I, don't, I never thought about it. Um, the first thing I would change? Yeah. And this is just like in a like an imaginative yeah. world, an ideal world. All of a sudden, world. you were invested <laughs> with this. I think power teachers would be paid on par with doctors. Um, I think the livelihoods of kids are in their hands, and I actually think it should come with that kind of remunerative outcome. Um, so I would try to make it a you know a high status. I would try to restore the status. Of what teaching really is in both monetary and intangible ways I would I would try to make it a democratic truly a democratic system where voting dialogue democracy discussion is how we make decisions and not corporate or monetary influence so I would try to curb and that's not to say that I would like um, deny the, the possibility that districts could receive private funds or private monies or whatever but I would do my best to try to shore up the democratic nature of schooling whether that's like just restoring a school board some places don't even have a school board right so like in Chicago it's all mayoral control so whoever that mayor is making decisions about people's schools so I restore school boards I actually would pay school board members because it's a full-time really, really, job. Yeah. It's a full-time job. And the people who can own, the people who can volunteer to be school, that already it's already geared towards the privileged folks who got, you know, maybe the money and the resources to volunteer as a school board member. But the average parent who should be making decisions about their school can't take on that without money and, and remunerative like things. So I would I don't know, I would just try to do little things like that that I think would tilt the balance of power in terms of who's making decisions. I would get rid of all for profit. <laughs> um, I, I just think it's, it's morally uh, incomprehensible that we would be making decisions about kids' education based on what can maximize profit. Um, the people in charge of schools and school districts should have a background in education. <laughs> they should have studied youth and child development. Like they should actually yeah. like know what a human being's <laughs> model of growth is in terms of what is a healthy way in which this human lives and breathes and thrives cognitively, socially, emotionally, culturally. So I just would I would put education in the hands of people who've studied education. Simple, but I think radical. Um what else? And I would, I would definitely start to tackle these debates about having a constitutional amendment around equal education. <laughs> the idea that it's okay to have differently funded schools in one country um, is crazy to me. I think the same way we have equal rights under the law as citizens, I think that should extend to equal education. So it should not matter what district you live in, what neighborhood you live in. The resources should be available to educate you and to the similar to a similar level as any other kid. So I would de-link wealth and property to the quality of education. That to me is crazy. 
So I would start there. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, thank you for uh, the interview. Thank you.